welcome to the Health Tech Podcast. Here we talk about everything healthcare and technology, and I'm your host, James Somaru. Hey everybody, this week I'm joined by Sam Tokra, and he's the founder and CEO of Third Eye Intelligence. He's a final year PhD student in AI and computer vision at Imperial College London. And at Third Eye Intelligence, they have developed an AI capable of forecasting clinical deterioration, predicting the risk of organ failure and guiding targeted treatment planning. So by giving clinicians ample warning and guidance, their system can help save lives and resources. So Sam, welcome to the Health Tech Podcast. How are you doing? Thanks so much for having me. No, perfectly fine. You're very <laughs> Looking welcome. Looking forward to discussing health tech uh, excellent so am i mate and it's obviously not the first time we've met is it because uh i met you when i judged the lbs health tech challenge this year which you guys won because of i suppose the the quality of what you're doing the the size of the problem you're solving and i'm just trying to think about what the mark scheme was maybe the way you presented and the quality of that too i can't quite remember but Anyway, it was an awesome presentation that you did. It's obviously an incredible thing that you're building very close to me and and my clinical training because it's obviously AI for intensive care units and predicting organ failure and clinical deterioration. Everything that I was trained to do as a human being, you guys are building an AI that can help, I would say, human beings with their decision making and people like I was. Um, It would have helped me and, and do all those different things. But as I say, looking looking forward to, to chatting about it with you. But first, whereabouts are you speaking to us from today? So I'm currently in Isle of Wight. Uh, my parents. You're in the Isle of Wight. Yeah. Oh, very yeah, nice. Yeah. Usually I'm in London. Uh, I decided to take a break from London and come to see my parents for a while. And then I'm, I'll be back. <laughs> very <laughs> nice. Did you grow up there? Where? In Isle of Wight? Yeah. If it's no, where your parents I, are. I'm originally from India where I grew up. And, oh, then okay. I, and then I moved with my parents to the UK. Got it. Got it. Very nice, man. So uh, the way that we start these podcasts is we get you to tell your story. And so obviously you're, I suppose, early in your entrepreneur journey, but certainly not early in terms of everything that you've achieved. Obviously, you're doing a PhD, you're doing all sorts of cool stuff. But I guess for the for the benefit of our listeners, why don't you tell us a bit of your story? Tell us the, the longer version. Yeah, I mean, uh, with regards to the entrepreneurial journey. Um, so for me, it wasn't that I set out to become an entrepreneur. It wasn't Mm. an idea that was sort of in my head at the time. Uh, It started simply by trying to solve a problem that I just was experienced to. So it was, in my case, it was a loved one that was in the ICU, my grandfather in particular, and his experience within the ICU is what raised a lot of questions and the inefficiencies in the ICU in particular and at first, uh, it, it started more so with um, the guilt of not being able to do anything. As, a, as just a family member, you end up becoming somewhat of a spectator as things happen by in the ICU. Mm. But then I started to question if this is a recurring thing that will happen. And, you know, a lot of people will go to the ICU at some point in their lives. And if this is going to continuously happen in a cycle... Should I just be a spectator? It, yeah. was, it was that simple question that sprung me towards this journey more so. But basically, I initially, after my grandfather's experience, I began to just ask questions. Why is it that the ICU is inefficient? Why is it that a person goes to the uh, highest echelon of care where they're recorded 24-7, but still 
they're unable to find in time what happened. And time being the relative key here is that in ICU, the problem isn't that they don't have the intervention. It's more so that they don't know when to, when to administer it or keep track of everyone uh, with all the data that is coming in and decide, okay, now is the right time to intervene or before it's too late anyway. And the idea was, it came up as, okay, if, if this is the case, then it's really a workflow optimization problem, if you think about it, is right now, the current systems that they use in terms of early mornings, they're getting a thousand false positive alarms, right? Uh, when we spoke to a couple of doctors, we realized they have about 2000 emails <laughs> of these alarms. Uh, there's no way they will be able to filter through the noise because majority of them will be false positives. And there are a bunch of patients within that actually do need uh, the resources and care at the time. But due to it being clouded by the false positives, we're dangerously stretching those resources, right? Um, and I figured, let me first understand the problem because I don't know what I'm up against right now. Mm. I don't know how to go about it or how to solve it, let alone how to create a business out of it. Um, so it purely began by really just asking questions and understanding the problem. And after doing a bit of digging around and asking multiple doctors what the issue was, I then converged to what would be my first solution. Um, not the greatest solution, but it was something <laughs> mm. to get started with. And then I decided to pick up on what kind of resources I need for it. Um, and in particular, I found that I need a data set. I need the compute power. I need so-and-so. I need the technical expertise, et cetera. And that's essentially how things started to develop. So I built the first version of the solution. And then I decided in order to actually validate whether this is the right solution, I thought, okay, I need a medical person on board. Right? That's, a, that's a fair assumption. Yeah. <laughs> so, so it, it didn't. So, one thing I want to clarify is I first understood the problem, figured out what my first version of the solution would be. And that's how I decided the skill set I needed in the team. Yeah. So, I knew that I had the technical expertise. So, I didn't need the technical expertise right away. Yeah. And I did actually naively first go to find that. So, I went up to my friends as well at the time. But then, they also lost interest because we didn't know what we were doing. Yes. And that, that was like the light bulb moments. Like, okay, I need to figure out a little bit on my own first what it is that we need so that I can guide the development process and then, then go for the team to figure out, okay, this is, these are the players I need in order to make it happen. As long as you know it, go for it. If you don't know it, don't do it. Otherwise you will actually end up being deterred. So that's when I went to, find Marta, who's, who's the clinician on board. And I kept asking her questions back and forth for like months or so. And I realized, hang on, she has all the answers. So why not just bring her up on the team on that front? So yeah, uh, so after I got the clinician on board and she gave me a slap of reality and said she wouldn't use it. So it helped me redesign the system. Interesting. Um, and truthfully told, like at first it was oh my God, I spent so much time developing this, but no one wants it. But then at the same time, it was like, now I know what they want. Mm. So I think keeping a customer in the loop or someone who understands the customer or the user from that perspective is super important when you're developing something. Because the likelihood is if you're disconnected from your user and you develop something, especially in the medical community, you can develop a great technology, but it just won't be used. You can go through the certification process. I mean, the medical world is littered with products that have been certified, but they're just not used. 
And I think that's a crucial part, especially when it comes to AI software development, talk to the user directly because there may be some parts of them that will say, I will never use it, right? You, you can't afford Absolutely. that at a later stage. Um, so from the clinician, then I realized, okay, now I think I can either publish this as some research work or I can convert this into a product. And that crossroad is what helped me decide, okay, now I want to, I think the entrepreneur journey is the right way forward. So I can actually bring this in the real clinical environment, go through the testing and bring this in the hands of people. And that's where I then found my other team member, Luca, who assisted me with understanding more of a commercial procedure of how this can be uh, moved forward in that direction. Because I still was in that PhD researcher mindset, which was so closed off from the rest of the humanity. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, and so overall, uh, and then up from, from there on, it's just been more so doing what we did there, but in, in a different domain. Um, so a growing team, attracting other bright minds to help develop the product to a state where it was presentable uh, into a prototype. And then we decided to go after uh, some of these hospitals because the next stage of development was we need to test this in an actual clinical environment. We can't just keep developing and testing outside. Otherwise it will always remain a project. And, but the point was in order to get, to get those bright minds to tag along with us, we need something tangible to get them on our side. And we got it to a presentable state and then we presented to them. And then we got two partners to join on with us to do a clinical trial and move forward to. So that's where we are now. Um, so yeah, that's that's practically the entrepreneur's journey. So it's wow. still a learning phase for us. But what <laughs> what you realize is you're, you're consistently you have to evolve and be malleable because the new type of requirements and decisions you'll have to make are going to go beyond what your current experience holds. So as long as you're open to changing shape in that, and I think I think then it will be a clear view forward. It's an incredible journey, man. And I think it's a very real account of going from an idea to reality. It's a real kind of magnified focus on that that you've given. And I think you've been very honest about the challenges, what motivates you, how you've actually practically done things. It's funny. That's the stuff that I normally have to really like get blood out of a stone style from people to be like, what's actually the practical reality, but you've offered that really nicely. I think the bit that I'd like to start with is the very beginning where you, you got the motivation. We talk about this a lot. There's so many people that come here motivated by a family member themselves, their own experience, a family member's experience of the healthcare world. And that propels them to then solve the problem. It seems to me that that's kind of the initial fuel that people need in health tech, something that drives them beyond just the desire to make some money or earn a living or, you know, something that something that is beyond that, which you definitely have. The other thing I think, which is part of the, that initial fuel is curiosity. I noticed this when I was doing the quality improvement projects that it was my curiosity of asking why, which you, I share that with you, you know, what, why is it that the workflow is not optimized? Why is it that data is not used in order to make things more efficient? That's a strange thing. And it's normally, that's the way it's always been. It's too complicated. And it's because those skill sets have never seen the intensive care unit. It's not as if as part of your PhD, 
you have to spend time doing 10 ward rounds and then coming up with a potential solution. If that were the case, you'd have a heck of a lot more data scientists creating solutions for intensive care units. It's just that, as you say, it's a black box, right? You don't know what's behind there. So until there's more doctors that understand machine learning and all the rest of it, you're never really going to see solutions there because those worlds never collide. So I think it's really interesting that that curiosity has driven you to pull back the curtain and to, and to drive you to ask those clinicians what's actually going on behind the scenes to see if you can solve the problem. And I think progress as well is what keeps that kind of fire burning. It's progress, it's new insights. Even if those new insights mean that you find out something doesn't work, it's still that you've learned something doesn't work. And I think that tends to fuel people to go on. But I suppose going back to that bit about the fact that you know data scientists don't do ward rounds it's funny to me that like surely that's coming like surely it's coming that engineers computer scientists data scientists just start doing ward rounds because it strikes me that if you did you know a, a nice juicy post medical take ward round with like 30 40 patients and then you sat them all in a room together and you were like right what you've just seen needs to be better. I wonder how you guys could do it. I wonder, I think you'd get a heck of a lot of uh, cool stuff that comes out of something like that. So, yeah, I think as you stated, you know, one of the problems is that the engineering world is so segregated apart from the medical world. I right. feel like the divide between the engineers and doctors, the gap, shall we say, not the divide, the gap between the two is what is being trying what we're trying to fill essentially but the problem is when you don't have the two interacting together you get technologies that don't actually meet the full requirements meet them halfway but then it's literally reflective of that exact yeah. problem when they're and you know i don't like jargon but when things are built in silos not understanding each other's worlds in i suppose the micro so like an engineer doesn't understand what a doctor does in the micro well what they build in the macro the engineering solution does not fit into the healthcare world like it's, it's obvious right if you just extrapolate exactly i think yeah so it's, it's the case of that gap. And to be honest, I think there's also like the barriers itself, like getting a hold of clinician is so difficult. That's a physical barrier. Definitely. Yeah. You need <laughs> an ID card. Like literally. <laughs> exactly. It's just it, it, in order to communicate with them and getting in a room with them to talk to them is, is, is such a barrier to get them in the first place that. Yeah to some extent, the, the community has been developed in a way that there's multiple channels yeah. Uh, to get to them but the problem is you don't know what the right channel is each yeah. channel leads to some direction but it may not lead to the right one and uh, there have been multiple solutions but then there's no right solution or one in particular and i think that confusion and what, what's end up happening right now in terms of innovation cycle is it's a labyrinth or a maze to actually traverse through in order to get to the end um to actually get a solid product going through because now, when you traverse through the maze, you realize different people at different points within the maze have different requirements. Yeah. But the end user is not necessarily in control of what should be procured or what should be brought in. It's someone else and they have different requirements too. So it's like, <laughs> whom should I be catering for? Yeah. Um, and I, th I think I think even what you've explained there, you know, I lost you halfway through that, but that's kind of the point, which <laughs> which is just like... At the end of the day, an interesting element of this is that you're now at the point of clinical trial. In order to get to that point, you have so much defensibility 
Because that maze that you've just described is the exact maze that someone else is going to need to try and find a way into and out of in exactly the right way, pleasing everybody along the way and all the checkpoints to get through it, right? So you're pretty comfortable that if someone else turns up today and says, you know, my grandparents just been in intensive care. I'm keen to build an AI solution that solves the problem. You know, they're what, two years behind you? (laughs) Like at the very least, you know, trying to essentially get to your point, which I think inherently is value. And I think, you know, this isn't either to knock the healthcare world for that either, because, you know, I've, I suppose, grown up a lot since starting this podcast. And I suppose the way about this, the way I talk about this stuff has changed a little bit now that I've been in and out of various, you know, NHS management and other, other positions. It's funny because you see, you see big systems and the the way that they develop and they always develop away for a reason. And I think if it were easier you would get worse solutions getting to the front line pretty quickly. And you and I were just talking off air before we started recording about this exact thing, right? Even some of the things that get through are not very well regulated, despite all the hurdles. They are not very accurate, despite that they have to prove accuracy. So even even as difficult as it is, there are still solutions getting through that aren't great. And so I think Part of us talking about how difficult the system is to get through for innovators, I think that also should be complemented with, yeah, but you're innovators and you're entrepreneurs. It's kind of your job. So so, so get on with it <laughs> sort of thing, which you have. So yeah. I don't know what your thoughts are on that. No, I think, uh, you know, one of the worst cases, and this is going back to the solution we had discussed, is the fact that sometimes when these these solutions get through and they're not validated to the same extent that they should be validated. And it's borderline unethical that they go through. Oh, it is. It's, it's not even borderline. It's not even because, borderline. Yeah. It's, it's wildly unethical. Right? <laughs> yeah. Because lives are lost at the well, end. Correct. So, it's, absolutely. So I think it's, it's right that they, to some extent, it's right that we should have uh, better, testing procedures or better evaluation procedures, let's say, to scrutinize what comes through and not. So kind of like a market regulation within the healthcare yeah. system. And, you know, it, I, I think it should also be, similarly, innovators should reflect that, that, you know, we if we're really confident about our technology, then providing that evidence shouldn't be a problem. Yes, right? because that is exactly what you're validating for. As scientists, that's what you develop for. Uh, otherwise, you are yourself doing unethical work if you're pushing something that isn't validated and you know isn't right, um, right? Which is why we're also pushing that we want to do a trial before we actually start selling, mm. uh, even though you know many digital products don't necessarily go through a trial on that. Mm. Front. They don't provide uh, evidence to that level of scrutiny that we would like to go for uh, within the it's ICU. A- it's interesting, um, isn't it? Because you mentioned mindset a while ago as well, when you talked about the academic mindset versus, I suppose, the entrepreneur mindset. And it's funny because when you throw phrases around like evidence-based, you know, as clinicians, we're trained to be evidence-based. As scientists, we're trained to be evidence-based. But if you're purely from the business world and you're purebred capitalist, evidence-based doesn't really feature there not front of mind anyway, like it does for a clinician or a scientist. And I think it's interesting the way that you described that initially when you talked 
about literally mindset and at the time when you mentioned it in my mind it's sort of yeah there's the academic mindset which is that you literally can't say or write anything publicly unless it is 100% accurate or 110% accurate even and that's the only time you're going to be truly comfortable is if things are really robust and they're really validated and you know a trial with 30 people is not good enough it needs to be an rct before i'm comfortable saying it does a certain thing on the website you know what i mean it's there's yeah. that whereas on the other side you know the 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 business person the capitalist that you know is 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 about different things will be like if it's trialed on one person they say it's fine i'm going to put that on the website and you know because that's what it is and that's true and that's what it does and you know when it comes to the end of that equation you're really it's about impact right it's about making impact and i suppose similar to what you've said about you've you got as far as you could with the academic side of things the academic mindset the academic pathway you kind of reached the point there where you couldn't really get to your impact point without then turning it into a business you do then have to borrow some of that stuff from business in order to make impact because you know i'm now in the comms game it's all about how do you present the messages correctly enough so for clinical credibility as well as just to get a bit of hype <laughs> like to make it actually a little bit interesting you know so there is a line to walk there which is super interesting but that said for me i think it's about what you talked about like it's it's honesty about being honest about where you are as a company and where you're at that at the end of the day if you just do what you've said it does and that's really good you'll be fine and so if you're telling me that you can predict the risk of organ failure and you say that comfortably then why not shout about that because that is a hell of a thing to be able to shout about you know um but it's interesting that mindset stuff is super interesting i mean if you struggled going from academia to entrepreneur and business is that is that way is that where, where are you comfortable actually which which of those if if not both if not neither i don't know so i think uh, a lot of how i would go about designing solutions even within third eye or when i think about something uh it's actually changed my mindset in how this would be transferred into the real world there you go don't yeah really question, yes right? because um in, in uh, many academic projects or so will be uh can you make this work, right? Mm -hmm. Is this feasible uh, technologically, innovatively? Can this happen, right? Is this hypo uh, hypothesis uh, valid? And once you've proven that, it's like, okay, great. Let's move on to the next. <laughs> yeah. That, 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 there's still that gap of transferring this to reality, which is a whole different set of challenges. Um, something we've even uh, come through with machine learning, which uh, may not actually still be discussed to the same limit, which is, the fact that let's say you have a machine learning model, you've trained it on your beautifully curated data set. There's plenty of now medical data sets available. Um, uh, and what people seem to forget sometimes is right that, that the machine learning field itself hasn't improved only because of the complexity of the algorithms we have now, but it's also the availability of data. Yeah, right? You remove some of these scans and images and these open source data sets we have, you wouldn't have the results that we have right now in machine learning. But the problem with that is that you've also inherently learned the biases of that data. Yes. Right. If you have this machine learning model that works in some data set A, and then in deployment, you have data set B, you know, all bets are off. <laughs> so it's like, if, if that's the case, and that's your reliance that you only work in this data set A category, 
But in real world, in medicine especially, you have data set B, C, D, E, and the list goes on, right? Yeah. The, the world is dynamic. There's no clean data. The real world is messy. Yeah. How does that transfer in the long term, right? Right now, you get all the traction. Your, your system will work well. The results are perfect. It's beautiful. You're going to raise funds. No worries. But when it comes <laughs> to deployment in the hospital or in the future in five years from now, how will that actually traverse? How will that work? Um, and if it, it, and even if it does, how are you going to answer questions with regards to you know change in data set or accountability if something goes wrong? Who's accountable? Yeah. Um, and I think those are the kind of things I wouldn't have thought of. Um, yeah. When when designing in the academia, because in, in the real world, the repercussions are real. Yes. If something was to happen with these models and a wrong prediction happens and I am responsible for, for something bad to happen, that's on me, right? These repercussions are real. Not necessarily in academia. It's somewhat clouded because it's an experimental room. Um, so there's that, that, that cushion that mm -hmm. if, if it goes wrong, it's still an experiment. I could just retry, not an issue. Um, um, so I think the, the strength from the academia side that I got was the ability to ask questions where not many would or figure out what kind of questions to ask and the kind of impact that would have. The strength that I got from the commercial aspect of thinking is delivery. Yeah. What you, what you create, if it can't be used in real world, it's useless. Yeah. Yeah. Because it, it won't get you to that impact point. And that's why it has to be a mixture of yeah. both. Because if it's not used, what good is it? Yeah. It's like you've created a beautiful airplane that doesn't fly. <laughs> you, should, you should take its wings off and turn it into a really expensive bus. What's Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, what, a, what a wonderfully descriptive analogy that is. Um, I want to ask you about third eye. Obviously, I, I know I know a bit about it from the from the presentation that you gave before. I'm actually writing a Forbes article currently about AI and intensive care units. I've been writing it for a while. I need to finish it, but um, yeah, I, I'm I'm interested. I suppose to to hear more about it than I've heard before. Um, tell our listeners roughly what it does. We know your founder story. We know how you got there, but tell us about the product and how it's practically used. Yeah, yeah. Um, so essentially, the product is based around that e in EHRs, specifically in ICU in particular, they're collecting multivariate data. We're talking not only live vitals from bedside monitors, but you also have patient text, notes, laboratory results, uh, uh, the actual interventions given over time. All of that gets stored, right? And it's the most monitored ward. And what we, our, our first challenge was, how do we create an AI model that can ingest this multivariate data? So not just different parts of the data, but different types itself, because now you're dealing with signals as well as text. So different, different type of methodologies are required to process them. Um, so how do you design an AI model that will learn meaningful information from these multiple sources and give me a warning signal? And not just give me a warning signal, but also then show me if I don't act, what the prediction would be, as in what will happen to that patient if I don't act now yeah. and how severe that would be. So the way I, we came across a problem when it, when it came to designing the algorithm is the issue with current machine learning models is they're very human designed, right? They're, because we're in our exploratory stage of AI. So there's a lot of design and iteration that is going in in order to come up with a model. 
I figured why not just task another AI to design these models for me, uh, optimize the op design process itself. And that way you throw away those biases of the designer who cannot necessarily come up with an optimal design because the amount of things to experiment with exponentially increases with every component. But that's not necessarily the problem for an AI model because it's searching for the perfect component in you know, hyperdimensional space. So we basically have an AI designing better AI. And wow. uh, that AI ingests this data and it learns to choose what components to have in the AI that is going to predict. And as the prediction AI gets better at doing prediction, the designer AI gets better at designing this. Model. Wow. And over time, they kind of optimize each other like a cycle. Uh, so, and then what happens is that designed AI model, that bespoke model is then that's what gets deployed uh, for making its prediction. And we encompass this in a decision support platforms, the software as a service, hmm. which actually gives clinicians the actionable insights that this model has. Because the other problem we had to tackle is the human behavior aspect of it. It's like, great, your AI model is predicting this beautiful number. What do we do with it? <laughs> how do we use it? And how do we use it in a way that can still earn the clinician's trust that, okay, this is a valid figure. And this, this makes sense why the AI is making this prediction. And this is actually giving me insights to actually make a change or decide in a better way, this is the right move to make, right? Because if you're not having that uh, actionable uh, value, then you're just another number on in front of a screen. Absolutely. Right? And they have a thousands of those. <laughs> Absolutely. And on that point about having thousands of those, one thing that I found interviewing people about the use of AI in intensive care is that one of the biggest problems to solve is alarm fatigue. Yeah. Um, and I think that actually probably goes a little bit further than just the word fatigue. It's almost like you're so fatigued with alarms that alarms lose their meaning almost entirely. You, uh, you only focus on an alarm if it's a patient that you're already at the back of your mind wondering about and concerned about. And so it's a strange one, alarm fatigue, because for me, it's almost gone beyond, even when I was practicing, right? It's almost beyond that. Like you always just assume a lead's fallen off before you assume anything bad has happened. And therefore, yeah. I don't know, that surely delays you when, when you know, it's like a boy that cried wolf kind of thing, right? Um, yeah. You can end up in that situation. So alarm fatigue is a big one. I think that's a big problem that, that AI can solve in intensive care. Have you seen in the, I suppose, the clinical trial that you're running or indeed the anecdotal stuff you've done previously or indeed whatever you've done previously to know how good what you're doing is, have you, have you noticed that, that thousands of alarms can be reduced? I mean, how, 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 have, how have you guys seen the impact on alarm fatigue? Yeah, so so all our study is right now retrospective based from the yeah, data okay. that we got from MIT. But even then, we could we actually compared and pitted our system against uh, the the scoring system that's currently used, which is Muse score, yeah. which is which is a high false positive rate. Right, that's what leads to the high alarms, the unnecessary alarms. Yeah. Let's say the false positive rate. So if you think about it, when someone says our accuracy is so and so, accuracy is the worst metric. Because it doesn't tell you anything about false positive, right? I know <laughs> we use it in the pitch as well because it's for humans, it's so easy to yeah. like, uh, correlate with it that, okay, high accuracy, it's pretty good. But yeah. actually, if you have high accuracy, but your false positive rate is insane, that just means that you're just giving out alarms for free. <laughs> well, it's sensitive, so, but it's not specific. Yeah. There you go. Yeah. And I think the 
one thing we realized is, so this is something we also spoke with clinicians is that the high false positive rate, though statistically is good, because if you think about it, what it really means is that clinicians can see more patients than they need to and verify that the problem doesn't exist. Yes. But it doesn't translate to reality because yes. you're stretched with dangerously stretching your resources on patients that don't need it. Mm-hmm. So you end up also sometime, well, neglecting it because it's just cluttered with so much noise. And yeah. what happens then is the alarms that are actually for the real patients that need it are also buried within these thousands of alarms that you're getting. I believe on average, these pay- is clinicians get about thousand emails on their alarm, uh, which, is, which is insane. So the way we went about it is to actually validate from the false positive rate is how much do we reduce our false positive rate? not just the accuracy. So our target initially when we were designing our AI model wasn't to optimize to increase accuracy, but it was to increase to reduce that false positive rate. Yeah. To say, I don't care whether you make your prediction 48 hours before or six hours before, I want you to just get the prediction right. Yeah. Six hours before. And then once we figured out a way to do that properly, we then said, okay, now let's stretch it. Like going from six hours, let's go 12, let's go uh, 18, et cetera, right? Let's go stretch it out, see how much earlier we can do. So it started with trying to get the right prediction and then a longer prediction. Yeah. That makes sense. It does. It does. Yeah. It's... um... Yeah, it's it's a it's a huge problem to solve, and the fact you're optimizing for specificity over sensitivity is, I suppose, music to the ears of anyone that is fatigued by multiple alarms. Um, in terms of like the, the the practicality of what they get, you mentioned a figure. How how does that kind of insight? translate is it that you just get sort of red light green light and the light will turn red as soon as somebody actually needs looking at is it an alert that just says look at this because i mean what what is the the insight that the clinician gets that they then action right so our platform is like so first of all we far we follow the fire color so okay yeah uh, zero probability which uh, which is never the case in ICU. <laughs> it's always 0.3 or 0.2 to begin with, but they're like the green zone. And then you have the amber zone, which is like between 0.4 to 5, et cetera, all the way to one, which is like the bright red. Um, and what you essentially get is initially you, you get a full dashboard of the patients in the ICU and they're automatically triaged in this, in this prediction so that you automatically know which patient is not doing well, where the resources need to be channeled to. And which patients are doing well, then there'll be uh, they'll be organized later on uh, within the software itself. So you have automatic triaging of your patients. And the cool thing is, since it's actually predicting the risk of organ failure before onset, it's also classifying what the underlying reason is. So if I'm looking at the actual uh, patient itself and the directory, you get to see what is the root cause of this. And the way we've built it is like having a human atlas. And you can see color-coded which organs are not performing well and which organs are. So the ones that are performing fine right now are green at this time instance. The ones that are that have a higher probability of failing are maybe amber. And the ones that we know are holy crap are going pretty bad, that they'll be red, et cetera. And then you also can see what is which part of the data the model is actually paying attention to in order to give that prediction. So they have that insight because one of the biggest issues we found is that they're looking at multiple sources of data, clinicians, in real time for multiple patients. It's like a huge, imagine 
a huge folder full of paper for every single patient in ICU thrown at you all at the same time, <laughs> right? That's yeah. what's actually happening. And we figured we can give them a torchlight that can say, this is what the model is focusing on to make this prediction. Does this focused part of the data actually help you make your own decision? As opposed mm -hmm. to looking at all of the data, which may not be necessary because you're, you're essentially trying to do pattern recognition yourself, mm. right? Let the system take care of some of that for you. And then you can dig deeper into the parts of the data that you really are questioning, right? It's to give that torchlight to increase the time, um, sorry, more so reduce the time it takes to make that quick decision. Um, yeah, I mean, again, my mind just goes to, if you've got a big unit, even something like knowing which pay, if it's triaged automatically, you just do the ward round in that order, which means yeah. that those people are just going to get the attention that they need as soon as they need it. It means that for, you know, the, the SHO, the registrar on call at night, they just know like whether they need to go and see someone and which ones they need to go and see first, just based on, on, you know, one number sliding up and down towards red or green. It's super interesting. Before we wrap up, Tell us about your clinical trial and what you're looking to prove in that trial. Yeah, so it, so far we did all of our statistical retrospective study on this large database we got, mm. which is a replica of a data set in the ICU acquired. From, Where did you get that data set? From MIT, uh, which is... Right, uh, okay. And what we essentially want to do in the trial, the first part of the trial is essentially replicating those kind of figures, those kind of values, the accuracy, the precision, and the recall, et cetera, onto the population of the data acquired from UCL. Because I think there's a big discrepancy between data set used for machine learning research versus data set in the real world. Yes, correct. And that di discrepancy needs to be taken into account before the AI model is deployed in the real world. So what I'm yes. trying to say is, a model that is shown shiny uh, with, uh, with like a prince on a, on a unicorn uh, trained on a machine learning data set is not going to look the same in the real world. No. The real world is messy. People make mistakes. Data entries are going to have errors. Uh, and there's also going to be so much of lag to deal with. These kind of things is something your model has to be robust to in the medical community. So uh, essentially, it's replicating those kind of figures in the real world scenario then it's basically doing product version of the testing because even though we've validated the algorithm, it doesn't mean that it will be used, right? It goes back to that uh, point that I mentioned is the medical world is littered with products that are great, but they're just not used. So it's the user aspect study that we're going to be doing as well, which is understanding what clinicians want, what kind of insights do they actually need within their day-to-day -day work? Because if I'm giving them a screen and they're saying that we're not going to spend more than two minutes looking at your screen, then I better design that screen that gives them all the information. <laughs> um, Absolutely. Right. So it's, it's then converting the system into product version one that will be certified and regulatory uh, approved by the regulatory body. Mm. So that's the aim of the trial to validate the system and to design the product version one and deliver it to approval. Mm. You know, we talk about the ethics of what you'll do. We talked about it before, the ethics of what you're doing and stuff. And it sounds to me like you've got that stuff spot on. You're not trying to prove something for the sake of proving it, just to tick the box, just to get the anecdotal thing on the website. You're actually going, well, what's the what's the toughest situation and re most real situation I can put this thing through to actually see whether it does really work? And that's 
so important to have that integrity in, in any health tech field or in times a million in, in intensive care for the for the stakes that are involved. How are you funding this? You know, it can't be can't be cheap to build this. It can't be cheap to staff a team. I mean, how, how, have, how have you done that so far and what, what are you looking to do? Yeah, so, so far we've been uh, blessed with the money we've got from competition and awards that we've applied. You're for. welcome. Uh, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, you know, it's, it's very much the, it's very much the, the, the people and the colleges, it's all of their help that has actually yeah. feasibly made this possible. Take them out. This, this wouldn't exist. Yeah. Um, so now with regards to the trial we're moving into, the pot of money needed is bigger. So we're actually going for grants right yeah. now, as well as fundraising uh, right now from equity yeah. funding. So those are the two cases we're running after. Grant being uh, grant being the ones that we're continuously going after. Um, sure. And yeah, so, so the next phase is going to require considerably more uh, in terms of funding sources, given that we're in the real clinical environment and mm-hmm. uh, we'll, be, uh, we'll be increasing the team uh, team number to full-time members. Yeah, I'll be wrapping up my PhD uh, mm. before that happens as well. Uh, so it will be all in. Mm. I must say, mate, I've got I've got no financial interest in what you're doing. Let's just say yet. Um, I of 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 all the people that I have on this podcast and what I know of you, I think this is a very 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 interesting investment for the investors listening. I think whether you're an angel, whether you're a seed fund or a series a and you look at health tech i think this is you know you're a very competent founder you're you come across extremely knowledgeable extremely competent in the sector you know your stuff you've done the hard yards you understand everything about the problem it seems to me not that i've done technical due diligence on you that you've clearly built a solution you're doing it yourself right you're putting it through a really tough trial so from a technical perspective, it's going to be super interesting what you do. And I understand the, the, I understand what you're doing. I understand where, where this is going. I have been there in intensive care. I can see exactly where this has come up. And in the, the article that I'm writing for Forbes, you know, I've spoken to some of the US companies, well, one of the US companies out there particularly that's doing this Clue ICU, and they found the market in, I suppose, more HDU type stuff, I would say, because of the type of data that they're collecting and, and stuff. Um, Anyway, it's it's super interesting what what you're doing. I think it is a really really interesting investment for for those listening. I'd be I'd be keen to know if you get any approaches after this, mate. Um, so do Definitely. keep do keep me updated. Um, so in terms of people getting in touch with you, um, be those investors or be those others, um, what is the best way for them to find and contact you, and indeed Third Eye? Um, we have a website, uh, which is also available on LinkedIn, actually. Probably the best way would be to just type my name in LinkedIn, and then you'll have all the information in, in terms of my email as well as the website there. Cool. Um, yeah, or I can say it out loud as well, uh, however you prefer. We'll find it. We'll stick it in the show notes, mate. That's Thanks. absolutely fine. We'll put, the, we'll put the Third Eye website in there as well for people to, for people to access and get to. Um, but yeah, Sam, as I say, absolute pleasure having you on um thoroughly enjoy hearing about what you're doing i'm sure you're destined for for great things my friend thanks so much yeah pleasure pleasure hey everyone thanks for listening and making it all the way to the end of this episode remember to subscribe rate us and leave a review and you can head to the description of this episode to follow me on all of my social media so you don't miss out on any of the latest health tech content